Hello, all you positive heads out there. Thanks for tuning your beautiful brainwaves into another episode of the Positive Head Podcast, which I'm excited to say we are now airing five days a week. Once a week, you can still hear an interview with a different consciousness change maker that is out there working tirelessly to help catalyze change and expand awareness across Spaceship Earth. But now, also, in addition to the weekly interview, on the other four weekdays, you can tune in to myself and my co-host, Dalian, giving interpretations of our favorite thought-provoking quotes, sharing a bit of inspiring or mysterious news, taking questions from the audience, and digging into any other mind-expansive topics we deem worthy of discussion. All right, all you positive heads, on this week's interview episode, I truly have an all-star lineup for you guys with three guests here with me that I would say represent the holy trinity of recovery when it comes to employing alternative plant-based treatments for both illegal and prescription drug addicts. Uh, Martin Polanco, MD, is the founder of Crossroads Treatment Center based in Rosarito, Mexico. Crossroads helps hardcore drug addicts such as heroin users by using the hallucinogen Ibogaine, which is sometimes compared to the better-known hallucinogen Ayahuasca. Uh, Martin's area of expertise uh, expertise also include therapeutic neurotechnologies. Deanne Adamson is the founder and president of Being True to You Recovery Coaching. Deanne has a master's in mental health counseling and both trains and certifies addiction recovery coaches through her proprietary recovery model, specifically as it relates to sacred medicine integration and transformative recovery. And last but not least is Dr. Dan Engel, who is the medical director at the Rejuvenation and Performance Institute in Sedona, Arizona. Dan's focus is on holistic psychiatry, and he has created a 21-day on-site Freedom from Meds program, which helps to transform the medicine-dependent into spiritually awakened and fully rejuvenated individuals. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Hey there, Brandon. It's great to be on. Yeah, thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, yes. Thank you all. It's uh, We've got uh, quite a full house. So as I was saying right before we began, my big challenge for this episode is just going to be to talk as little as possible and hear as much as I can from the three of you, because uh, I could probably do easily do a show with each one of you individually. And uh, I know you all have so many great things to share. So why don't we start with... Uh, Martin, can you give us, or actually each one of you, give us the uh, kind of a, you know, relatively quick elevator pitch of exactly what it is that you individually do. So my elevator pitch would be, I'm a medical doctor who helps people suffering from addiction using plant medicines. Fair enough. Who's next? (laughs) Deanne, ladies Mm -hmm. first. Great. Thanks, (laughs) Dr. Dan. Yeah. So as you kind of mentioned already, I own and operate Being True to You Recovery Coaching. What we do is we provide before and after care services remotely surrounding addiction treatment and transformative or transitional experiences such as plant medicine. We primarily are working with Ibogaine and the 5-MeO-DMT. We also, and by we, Being True to You, we provide recovery systems for both individuals and families that they can do from home, both online and offline in the real life. And then, of course, we also train and certify recovery coaches because we have just so many people wanting to get involved in this work. And our biggest project right now is building a transformative tech platform for addiction recovery, which would just be a personal recovery management system that also is connected to community. Very cool. And Brandon, on my side, my background is in psychiatry uh, through medical training, my residency, 
uh, child psychiatry fellowship. And then once I got out of medicine, I realized that I was desiring to do a more integrative and holistic approach. So I got an integrative psychiatry and then regenerative medicine, uh, concussion repair and traumatic brain injury repair, and then ultimately psychedelic research. And we're essentially bring, now bringing all of those together into a comprehensive platform that helps essentially people uh, become as uh, connected as they are able to to their purpose and their passion with as little um, intervention with pharmaceuticals and um, other technologies um, that might be able to uh, assist, whether it's from addiction recovery um, to um, chronic um, traumatic experiences or chronic uh, degenerative diseases. It's, it's a more of a comprehensive um, platform to be able to more specifically meet people where they're at. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, so there's with all three of you on the show and I have so many questions for each of you, I'm going to try and kind of jump around and feel free to interject at any point that one of you maybe wants to add something, um, you know, add, add your two cents into something that, uh, someone else has, has thrown out. Uh, I'll start with you though, Martin, how did you get involved with, uh, Ibogaine and psychedelic therapy? And actually, can you tell us a little bit about Ibogaine? Because I know it is a much lesser known, uh, you know, substance as compared to say ayahuasca or 5-MeO-DMT. Absolutely. Well, Ibogaine uh, is derived from the Iboga shrub, which grows in Central Africa. It's been known since the 1960s, but it's been used ceremoniously for hundreds of years in uh-huh. uh, rites of passage ceremonies. It was studied by the EA um, and NIDA, which is the National Institute for Drug Abuse, for treating heroin addiction. So there's a wealth of research and there's a ton of preclinical data to back up its effectiveness. Um, in terms of my interest and my path into this type of work, I've always been interested in plant medicines. Growing up in Mexico, I was part of, the, part of the traditional healing culture. So I was exposed to it as a teenager. And then when I had a close family member suffering from addiction, I came across a documentary which talked about ayahuasca and ibogaine. And I was intrigued because I'd never heard of ibogaine. But when I Googled it, this whole new world opened up for me where I saw that this was real and, and that it was effective. So I took her to see a practitioner and was really astounded by the benefits and the, uh, the transformation that took place over a single treatment. So I decided to dedicate myself to make it more available. Very interesting. And now at your, your clinic at Crossroads, do you guys work exclusively with Ibogaine or is there other, um, other substances and plant medicines and so forth that you, you utilize? So we're allowed to utilize Iboga and Ibogaine. And we also work with a venom from the Sonoran Desert Toad, which contains 5-MeO-DMT. Okay, okay. So which is the active uh, molecule that is uh, also uh, present in ayahuasca, which is fairly well-known and seems to be becoming more uh, well-known. Is that correct? It's actually a different molecule. They're cousins. They're structurally similar, but they are not the same. So uh, ayahuasca contains NNDMT, whereas Ah. the toad venom is 5-MeO-DMT. And also the felt experience is quite different. Um, Some people have called NNDMT the spirit molecule and 5-MeO the god molecule. 
Ah, okay. I didn't. I wasn't aware of the the difference there. Um, and what is the difference between iboga and ibogaine? Because I've heard both of these as well. Um, what's the difference there? So iboga is the actual plant. So it's a root, which okay. uh, contains the active alkaloid. So when somebody says iboga, it's the shavings of the root bark, and this okay. contains anywhere from twelve to fourteen different alkaloids. And ibogaine being the most studied and uh, the one that we use for treating addiction. So one could say that iboga is to ibogaine as ayahuasca is to DMT. So it is the principal active component. I see. Okay. That, that makes sense. And how long does uh, an iboga experience last typically? So an iboga experience can be quite long, uh, but for addiction, we use ibogaine and, and that has three different phases. But what people would consider the experience itself can be anywhere from four to 12 hours. That's when the people have these visions and these insights and this access to their subconscious mind. Okay, okay. And now, Dan, you've done a lot of work with ayahuasca, correct? That's correct. And how would you compare, you know, what would you say is the main difference between uh, ayahuasca and ibogaine? That's a good question. It's a little bit different for everybody. Uh, So I'll speak in general terms. Uh, We can talk about that in terms of duration, intensity, and quality. So the duration for ayahuasca versus ibogaine, um, ayahuasca is about six hours plus or minus. Mm -hmm. Ibogaine is about double that plus or minus. Wow. The intensity level with ibogaine tends to be a bit stronger than ayahuasca. Most people would say that. Um, if you're just doing yeah, a one-off, like one ceremony to one ceremony. And the quality is quite a bit different. When you, talk, when you think about the physical experience, of the, the quality of the experience, the emotional quality, and um, the psychological quality. So the physical quality, uh, ayahuasca is more of a purgative or purge. And mm-hmm. they actually call it La Porga down um, in South America. And uh, ibogaine is not as much of a purgative. It's um, it tends to be stronger, but very much more inward. So if you're mm-hmm. looking at somebody going through an ibogaine experience, they're typically very still because it heightens all of your senses, and mm-hmm. particularly your vestibular sense or your uh, internal balance. And so if you have a lot of movement in the field, it can tend to actually create nausea. And you tend to feel sick um, on ibogaine. So you, the the outward appearance is almost like somebody's asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, psychologically, it's quite a bit different. Um, th- for me, and this has been for many clients that I've just spoken with as well, ibogaine is very good, obviously, as an addiction neurochemistry interrupter. And it helps you get really clear through a life review about things that are in alignment and things that are out of alignment. Mm-hmm. So what am I engaged in right now that's working for me and what is not working for me? And then what are the ramifications of that and how do I, how do I change it? Ayahuasca, she does the same thing but in a different format and a different kind of flavor. It's almost like getting underneath the behavioral experience to be more clear about what traumatic events have happened that have led to 
the behaviors in the first place or led to the addictions in the first place. I see. So I began this, this super strong clearing effect in the mind. So you mm-hmm. come out of that experience because it's so strong. You come out of that experience with your inter-psychic hard drive, your psychological hard drive rebooted and wow. cleared out of all of its junk files and cookie open open windows and cookies and everything just gets <laughs> got like purged out so that you can now really get clear on how to reshape your life. And that's where it's really important to come into the integration phase and have support in reshaping life because now everything is new and um, the opportunity to recreate one's life and oneself is very available if right. the support is there and the, the perseverance to make those changes actualized in, in your life is there. Right, right. And Deanne, this is where your expertise comes in is helping with the ongoing recovery process, correct? Uh, yes, exactly. In the video that's on your website, you said something that I, I found really interesting. You said recovery is a process uh, not measured by sobriety. Can you explain exactly what, what that means, what you meant by that? Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's not a philosophy that I entered into the field with. It's something that I just started to notice over time that recovery mm-hmm. is a process not measured by sobriety in that the entire purpose of addiction is about the personal transformation. So if we make recovery about sobriety, we're really just missing the point, which continues to launch a person back into their addiction until they get the transformation that they originally sought. So in my opinion, and what I see is that sobriety is just an empty goal. Um, It's just an empty goal that means the abstinence from an addictive substance, whereby Normally, a person is just replacing one addiction for another addiction. And what we see mm-hmm. when you just focus on sobriety and we really force that issue is that um, you are not allowing yourself to learn the lessons that you're supposed to learn and discover the truths that you're supposed to discover and really unfold and walk through that journey of relapse and challenges and hardships and obstacles on your own so that you can come into this truth that you have. Rather, you're just removing the addictive substance from yourself and learning to cope in a different way, but you're really missing the point of the transformation. I think it's very damaging, right. actually, that we have linked sobriety with recovery because it, it basically says that anything that you do before you become abstinent or sober, is it doesn't count. And if you relapse, right. everything that you did before the relapse doesn't count. You go back to start. And so what we're doing is we're asking people to go from amateur to pro overnight or in 30 days. And nowhere else in our life do we expect people to go from amateur to pro in less than 30 days. You know, so when we understand that addiction recovery is a process, we are allowing ourselves to be in that transformative journey and learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn over time. And sobriety comes as a uh, result of the work. But if it's forced without doing the work, then again, we're just missing the point and it's going to continue to launch a person back into addiction over and over and over and over until they start to figure that out. Right. And, you know, one of the things that's really curious to me and someone who's been had a lot of interest in psychedelics and plant medicines and so forth for a long time, um, you know, 
Ibogaine is something that I've just recently in recent, maybe last couple of years even heard of. And it's from the work that you guys are doing, it seems like it's, you know, heads above any other alternatives out there. It's just, isn't it, it's just shocking to me that this is not more widely known and more widely used. I mean, why is that? Is it because of the psychedelic properties and how intense it is that it's classified as, you know, an evil psychedelic or like, well, you know, I don't know. I'm just curious what you guys thoughts are on that. Well, it's obviously schedule one. So one is not allowed to work with it in the United States. So that has limited its uh, widespread adoption, even though it is the best treatment for dealing with opiate withdrawal and opiate dependence. And it's also not recreational, so it doesn't have a history of, of an underground recreational use. I mean, most people that take it, they're glad they took it, but they never want to take it again. It's, <laughs> right. a, it's a pretty, pretty profound and sometimes harrowing experience. And for, for opiate addicts in particular, these are people who generally do not want to explore their psyche. They're using drugs to numb their mind right. and to, to quiet their thoughts and to not have to think about you know, their problems. And I begin really forces them to have these conversations inside of their, their, their mind, which are not fun for them. In fact, they're, they're, they, they can be very difficult to be confronted with who you really are and all the opportunities you've missed and the people that you've hurt. So um, right. I guess that's the long-winded answer is why it's not widely used. Um, it does have a, a cardiovascular risk profile, which is something that we as physicians need to be careful with when working with mm-hmm. it. It's not something that somebody should take on their own at all. Well, you know, there's all that, but then you also have to look at this is a one-time, one-night treatment that w- that bring that detoxes a person without withdrawals, and so therefore it doesn't have maybe a high propensity to make a profit. So when you're looking at the competition, right. maybe something like Suboxone and Methadone, these are billion or trillion dollar industries where you're um, profiting off of patients on a monthly basis. And then you have something right. like Ibogaine. It just can't compete with the pharmaceutical, the other pharmaceutical drugs out there. So I don't think there's a lot yeah. of benefit to, and I know there's a lot of other layers to this, but I don't see a lot of benefit to the pharmaceutical world or the medical um, industry to bring something like Ibogaine in because it is a, a one-time treatment over one night <laughs> and it works. Wow. Wow. I wasn't aware it was only one time. I mean, that is incredible that it gets the type of result coming. Can you talk a little bit about the type of results that you typically see? I'll let Deanne answer that question. She's talked to thousands of people before and after I begin. (laughs) Okay. Well, I've talked to, you know, I don't know, definitely over a thousand. Um, There's a lot of benefits that come out of it. I mean, some of the core benefits are, number one is probably clarity. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Within the Ibogaine experience, it has this, um, this, this typical scenario that puts a fork in the road. So a person going through will see their life if they continue down this road of addiction. Usually that road mm-hmm. goes to their death. And then they'll see a very other clear path that is if they take the road to recovery. And in addition to that, they're able to see a lot of the self-sabotaging cycles and themes in their life that they've been doing and so one of the number one things that I see that people come out with is just this clarity, this clarity about inner value systems, a clarity about their passions, clarity about their life purpose, clarity about the direction in life. 
or maybe it's just the clarity wow. of what they don't want anymore. So even if they don't know what they want, they get very clear on what they don't want anymore, which is sometimes helpful. Um, in addition to that, right. there's just this re, uh, in, there's this inspiration, this uh, motivation, this excitement about life that comes back, this hope that comes back. And so with wow. that, you're going to bring in a lot of goals and dreams um, and, uh, you know, again, passions into the mix. So clarity and vision and hope, um, which just unleashes so much more. And then you have the, the healing aspects of it. So everything that's been holding a person back, whether it's trauma or addictions or depression or some other kind of um, ailment that they've been carrying, a lot of times through the experience, they have undergone um, a healing process in a lot of these areas. So not only are they coming out with this clarity and this vision and this hope to move forward, you know, but now they actually have the freedom to do so because they're not held back by some of this heavy, heavy emotional baggage that they've been carrying in life so long. Right. And and really, we could just go on and on about the benefits. I'm sure, Dan or Martine, if you want to add to that. Well, from a physical perspective, the withdrawal is pretty much gone after a single dose. It takes away 90% of all the symptoms. And there is no drug. That's in incredible. Western- there's no drug in Western medicine that does this because the drugs that we have in our arsenal are uh, substitution drugs. So you can, you can give somebody methadone or you can give them suboxone and then detox them off of that. But as soon as the methadone leaves the system, the person goes back into withdrawal. But with Ibogaine, they don't go back into withdrawal. So there's some physiologic neurochemical change that is reverting these systems and receptors to the way they were before the person started using. So it, it is remarkable. Is the closest thing we have to a miracle drug, although we don't claim it to be a cure for addiction. It's an addiction interrupter. Brandon, how does one, this... one, if, if I'll just offer a yeah, reflection please. right now, your response right now is oftentimes the response that I get when I'm talking to other clinicians, particularly physicians, right, or even lay people, you know, friends, family, and clients. If I'm talking to people about the data, if you just give people the data on ibogaine, they're blown away. Yeah, because the data is so impressive, and that's why we don't necessarily. It's this isn't really about selling it to anybody. It's about giving everybody clear choice, and giving them clear information so that people can make their own authentic choice. And that's ideally what we're offering people the opportunity to experience, whether it's psychedelics or any path in life. That we have our own authentic choice once we're giving unbiased data. And yeah. the data is strong for Ibogaine in regards to addictions. It has other implications too, just in far, as far as life goes. Not everybody <clears throat> that's drawn to Ibogaine or the curiosity about personal development is doing it from an addiction um, doorway. And it's amazing just by itself how impressive it is at being able to unravel a very complicated situation that allopathic medicine, general Western medicine, doesn't have a whole lot of um, clear, universally applicable interventions for supporting somebody going through addiction. When you look at the, the general rates for people going through recovery using a standard Western approach, the success is somewhere between 10 and 20 percent. And yeah. when you're looking at the long-term effect of somebody going through a one-time Ibogaine experience with ongoing support like the recovery coaching that Deanne's speaking about, 
the success rate is somewhere between 60 and 70%. Yeah, that's a huge, huge difference. Huge difference. What What are the risks with taking Ibogaine? I, I'd heard before, and I don't know if it's true or not, in some cases there are people that can um, that can have an adverse reaction and, you know, something about their biology that's, you know, in particular that can cause them to, to die instantly. Is that, is there truth in that? Is that? Yes and no. Uh, One of the reasons I, I believe that uh, there's been a lot of uh, implications that this is true, uh, Mm -hmm. that the psychedelics got put into schedule one is that um, they, they do have danger. They do have their contraindications they do have the right place, and they do wake people up to sometimes scary experiences that they may not know how to deal with. So if right. somebody's using a series of psychedelic experiences and getting into trouble, so to speak, like they are losing capacity for the, to self-observe that they're potentially making poor choices, that can look like a lot of different outcomes. Um, when people started on in mass experimenting with psychedelics and ending up in the ER um, that just gave the administration a lot of ammunition to be right globally putting everything in schedule one because it was just easier to do that. Um, yeah. Interestingly enough, <clears throat> the DEA is the one putting different um, psychedelics into schedule one while they're also enforcing the laws for those people who are experimenting or are using those outside of the legal context and the legal context here in the States is essentially uh, religious protection or involvement in uh, uh, a medication or psychedelic drug trial, like through MAPS. Right. There's some organizations that are formally doing trials here in the States. But if somebody's going outside of that framework, then um, you obviously come under legal implications. So, there's a variety of reasons that people are held back against doing that. And um, I think there, there's reason to be cautious. There are reasons that these medicines are strong. And we're not, I myself am not advocating that they be universally legalized without the, the concept of a right place and setting for sure. them to be used. For example, Ibogaine has a cardiac effect. People do die on Ibogaine. Not very commonly, but it does happen. And it happens when you don't have somebody hooked up to a heart rate monitor and you're checking their vital signs and you're seeing what their blood pressure is and their heart rate is and their level of lucidity or consciousness. Because if you're looking at them, if you're just eyeballing them from the outside, it might look like they're asleep. But in the midst of their blood pressure and heart rate dropping further and further, then you get into arrhythmias and then that can be a cardiac death. So yeah. the invitation is to be able to explore <clears throat> the arena of appropriate psychedelic use in a very safe, medical, medically supervised arena. And so what yeah. are we the contraindications? Contraindications are if somebody has any history of psychosis or mania or what would be called depersonalization. Like they're already disconnected from life, um, Mm -hmm. so to speak, like they're living in a fog, kind of disconnected from their surroundings. Those are the psychological clear contraindications to really any psychedelic use. And then you get into the more specific physiologic contraindications, 
for example, with Ibogaine, if anybody has a history of heart disease mm-hmm. and if anybody is on a psychiatric or psychotropic medication, like for example, antidepressants classically do not go well with the psychedelic exploration, particularly ayahuasca and Ibogaine. So those are yeah. kind of the, the clear no-go zones. And then you have um, softer inclusion criteria or exclusion criteria, and that's when it comes into getting really good, thorough history and being able to help people assess if it's the right time um, to have an experience like this. Oftentimes, though, when people are coming into Ibogaine, they're coming out of crisis. Yeah. Um, they're coming out of long-term drug use. They're scared, and they're motivated. So fear is bringing them into the arena, which is good. Fear can be a great motivator, particularly for helping people um, get out of long-standing addictive patterns that are life-threatening. And, yeah. um, and that's part of the art of being able to um, assess people, but also have a platform that allows them fairly quick inclusion into a program. Because sometimes if there's a window of opportunity in somebody's addiction, addictive pattern, they recognize that there's a problem. They need help right away. If they don't get help right away, they're going to slip back into old patterns, and that could yeah. be self-destructive and potentially lethal. Yeah, that was uh, something that I actually had on my list to ask you guys because I was very curious about. Aside from drug treatment, you know, are there any diseases that you believe ibogaine or even ayahuasca could help with or 5-AMO DMT? You know, um, one of the things that someone had mentioned to me before is the potential of ibogaine with severe mental illness or schizophrenia. But it sounds like from what you just said, that would not be advised as something that would potentially be helpful. Classically, it's not advised. Although I've lived in the jungle for long periods of time, worked closely with the traditional medicine holders and carriers in centers where people would come for long periods of time and do very mm-hmm. slow methodical work over um, you know months. And I've seen people with classic bipolar mood disorder and schizophrenia be healed wow. through the use of ayahuasca. Uh, and it, that is a very high level degree of mastery. And I would not recommend that for the context that we're talking about. Right. Right. That's something where it's, uh, someone basically in South America, I'm assuming, uh, through the, under the guidance of a shaman or something like that, that yes. is, is taking this yeah. person through a right. Very because interesting. You, because the deal, I mean, when you think of schizophrenia or anybody with a predilection towards psychosis, they're already across the veils, so to speak. Yeah. They're right. already in the ethers. So yep. flooding them into an experience is going to take their um, psychic, psychological their imprint. Right. You're going to cut their grounding cord even further. You're going to have yeah. a hard time getting them even even more back into their body. They need right. very <laughs> clear, like somatic, like deep body experiences, not more of a really powerful mind-opening experience. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. It's just, you know, seeing the the truly, you know, wonder drug kind of uh, experiences that I began in what we're talking about here, that's instantly what I, I go to knowing someone in my own life who, you know, a few years back just kind of went off that cliff of just completely in their own, you know, severe mental illness at onset and maybe their um, mid-30s. And it's just very sad to see. So uh, I just, you know, think of that if if there's any potential even. And it sounds like with ayahuasca, there may be, but um, certainly that's not a, something. That's a 0.001% kind of applicability. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. Um, but what we, you know, you, and I'm not going to unpack this discussion. This is a larger one for a different conversation. But in sure. regards to classic bipolar mood disorder, schizophrenia, and these sorts of pictures where my training as a psychiatrist 20 years ago said, and it's not so different now, that those situations, there's essentially no cure. Yeah. You, you simply yeah. manage it. And I yeah. don't think that that's totally true. I think it's very challenging. It can be very challenging in the existing framework to address those issues. You have to get into nutrigenomics, genetic profiling. You have to have targeted supplementation, graduated detoxification. And there are mm -hmm. very good ways to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it's a high investment and it's a high, you know, it's a long process. And I've seen people be completely resolved of those chronic conditions using the right approach. Right. So what we're talking about here is simply like what's the right approach for something like addiction and being able to offer Ibogaine is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful effective tool on the planet right now for addiction recovery, period. Wow. Are there any other diseases that you believe Ibogaine or ayahuasca? I'm sure you're probably familiar with um, sacred science uh, documentary. I actually interviewed Nick Polizzi uh, a few months back and where he took a group down to um, South America and, you know, they use plant, plant medicines. And I think five out of eight of the patients had some sort of significant, you know, uh, benefit uh, or recovery from their, their disease. So curious uh, with Ibogaine, knowing less about that, uh, are there any other diseases that you're seeing a lot of potential with aside from, you know, addiction? Well, we see really good results with depression. We've seen mm -hmm. good results with uh, some eating disorders. There is some preliminary evidence that it might be beneficial for Parkinson's. At least that's being studied. And uh, we would never advertise that or tell people that is going to help them. But there is intriguing um, just data from um, a few patients. But I would say depression and eating disorders. Those are the main ones. Okay. Yeah, well, those are certainly big ones that uh, a lot of people suffer from. So um, it's just fascinating. And for as of now, you being based, uh, Martin, down in Mexico. So there is nowhere in the States that someone, uh, if, you know, if someone listening has a family member who has a drug addiction or something, uh, the closest place is going to be to come down to Rosarito and see you, correct? Correct. That would be the closest. Although there's clinics in Costa Rica and in Brazil in Africa. So it's a worldwide movement. It's only illegal in five countries. Well, actually seven. Oh, but only, really? Wow. Yeah. So it's illegal everywhere except the US and a few other um, countries in Europe. It's very random how it got made illegal because there wasn't any history of use and the, it got uh, misclassified and it is now in Schedule 1, which is the most restrictive category, which is for drugs that have uh, high potential for abuse and no medical use. So on both counts, mm -hmm. it's wrong. Wow. And at your clinic, you also use uh, 5-EMO DMT as well. Is that correct? Or is it all Ibogaine? No, they use the venom of the Sonoran Desert Toad, which contains 5-MeO DMT. Oh, right. You mentioned that. And in what cases would you use that as opposed to Ibogaine? Like, um, is there a particular... Well, most patients take both treatments and they're not given I at see. the same time but during the same week so a I few see. days in between and they have very complementary effects and we've seen some pretty amazing results so most they can it's not uh, mandatory for patients to mm -hmm. take the 5-MeO but most of them opt to do it mm -hmm. 
I have a shamanic facilitator friend who uh, says, the way he puts it is uh, iboga or ibogaine is a, is a mind uh, masculine medicine and ayahuasca is sort of like the feminine heart medicine. And I think it was you earlier, Dan, you mentioned you referred to ayahuasca as a, as a her uh, or in the feminine sense. Um, would you agree with that statement? And if so, could you maybe elaborate on what that all means? <laughs> sure. It is true that people have had direct contact with the spirit of the medicine. And then you get into this really esoteric conversation about philosophy sure. and spiritual. We do a lot of that on this show. So <laughs> Oh good. Okay, great. Don't hold Go back on. for my sake, please. <laughs> okay. So we're in we're in good company. <laughs> exactly. Um so and that's unique to a particular person's for example, some people are really good athletes, some are good musicians, some are high level intellects. Some people are plant people. Some people are super good gardeners. Some people have a green thumb and just grow amazing uh, produce that I wouldn't be able to do because I don't have that skill set. Some people have contact with the spirit of a plant and the experience of that. Some people have religious experience in the midst right. of a ceremony that includes um, the, the direct understanding from their perspective about what mm -hmm. that plant's essence is like and that spirit is like. And there are universally applicable flavors of that experience between people who have not had any contact with each other and have not read other accounts of the medicine before coming into the experience. Right. And that uh, generally, the, the themes are that ayahuasca is a feminine spirit or essence and that iboga is a masculine spirit or essence i myself haven't had direct contact with either of those plants i've had direct contact with other plants in the midst of um spending long times surrounded by plants in the jungle mm -hmm. in isolation mm -hmm. and i think of it more like the for me personally i think of it more of the quality of the experience iboga and ibogaine are super strong like a strong masculine force it comes on strong it kind of lays you down. You don't even want to move. Um, yeah. It feels like my whole energetic field is getting wrung out like an old rag. Right. And on the other side of the experience, it leaves or it, 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 it comes off. Um, and in the midst of the gray day or the, the kind of the full coming back to, um, there's a lot of internal processing about life in general. Um, which is similar to an ayahuasca experience, and the ayahuasca experience is different. It's softer, oftentimes. Well, the experience itself is much softer. Um, it can oftentimes have a feminine flavor as far as its nurturing quality, right? Um, its um, heart healing quality, um, and she has been described too as having different phases of that essence, like. Uh, there's a different grandmother essence, right? When we think of our grandma versus our mother right. and or even daughters and young <clears throat> girls and, and that young feminine spirit. So um, there are themes and it's all individual and the essence of the level of intensity can give it a particular flavor that's more masculine or feminine. Yeah, that that makes total sense and, and certainly seems to be for the people that have done both. I, I've yet to hear anyone kind of argue with that sort of perspective, but, uh, I just curious, uh, you know, uh, being, being an expert and having dealt so much with both, I'm assuming you have, uh, 
you have taken iboga as well as ayahuasca. Um, yes. Is that is that the case with all of you guys? Have you all um, had an experience with with both medicines? I have. Yes, it's okay. true for all of us. Okay. Okay. Great. And uh, would you all pretty much agree with that same perspective that it's it's you know one being the more masculine feel and and one being more heart and feminine? Yes. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, Deanne, now just to, to kind of touch a little bit more on everything that you're doing in the recovery world, can you share a bit? I know you, it says on, on your site that you have a proprietary recovery model. What does that look like? Yeah, exactly. I would love to share. So as I mentioned, what we do primarily is pre-care and post-care as the supportive container around addiction treatment and also plant medicine experiences that are related to addiction recovery and healing. Um, the models that we use are five models basically that we integrate into a 10 level program that happens over a year. Um, The five models that we use is a recovery plan just to address the personal vision and plan for each person. We use a recovery continuum to help a person locate where they are in that process, um, which is really going to help them and their coach determine what kinds of things they should be working on dependent on where they are. We also Mm -hmm. use a recovery circuit so that We're helping people identify what kind of recovery supports they need beyond recovery-specific support. So a lot of times when someone has been identified as an addict, we immediately segregate them from the rest of the world, and we give them a few options they have to choose from that are recovery-specific supports. And in my opinion, this can really hold people in the recovery bubble. So when we help our clients complete the recovery circuit, we're looking at the recovery-specific and the non-recovery specific community supports and resources that are available to just the general population. Um, We also work with a recovery wheel, which is just the educational modules. And then we have a recovery spiral, which illustrates the evolutionary process of change through addiction recovery over the course of one to three years. And again, then that's just integrated into a 10 level process of skills training and self mastery practices um, that would unfold uh, over a minimum of a year. Now, what's most relevant to this call when it comes to what we do is really just that preparation for plant medicine, for recovery, for this transformational experience, and then for Mm -hmm. the integration as well. You know, earlier we were talking about the benefits and the risks of these medicines, and honestly, it's just like anything. I mean, if you go into these experiences just unprepared and you're not familiar with the medicine, you're not familiar with the Um, or you haven't done your due diligence on the ceremonial leaders or the circles that you're in, and you don't really know what you're getting into, and you haven't prepped your mind and body, you're less likely to experience as many benefits as you would otherwise. And similarly, you're more likely to have more risks, and mostly just um, psychological risks or just risks of disappointment when you didn't get what you want. So a big part of our um, specialization and niche in the field is providing this container, the supportive container around these transformational experiences. Because one of the problems with ibogaine is that it does work so well. I mean, yeah. in a matter of three days, a person is detoxed without withdrawal. They don't have a physical addiction anymore. They're not having physical cravings. Many times they're not having any mental cravings. And they're just kind of riding on this pink cloud, feeling like they're fixed. And what that does is it can prevent them from actually doing the work thereafter. So yeah. the preparation like that we, easy. Yeah. And this happens a lot. And then what 
happens too is then people get on the internet, they give their testimonials, they speak out to the world that they're a changed person overnight, and then everybody else gets this idea that all they need is, you know, Ibogaine and they'll be free of their physical addiction and that'll be that. Um, So what we see is just how powerful the sacred medicines are, how precious it is to step from the intoxication of a drug addiction into a sober reality and how we have to create a supportive container to actually sustain that. Because if we're not doing that, we're, we're really just living in this illusion that we're um, helping ourselves or that we're going into recovery or that we're actually expecting change and, you know, keeping all of our loved ones emotionally um, on the hook as they're feeling that, you know, we're changing only to just go back and repeat the cycle over again because there was never any adequate preparation or integration. There's just a little, a snapshot of what we do. Very nice. Very nice. And if I can just add to that, Dan, that that's the exact um, flavor of what I was talking about when I was giving you the numbers, so to speak, on Ibogaine's and Iboga's um, benefit in addiction in regards to the percentages. Um, it depends on, when we talk about success, it really depends on if we're talking about clear, full sobriety. And for many people, that's their definition of success. And I agree with Deanne. I think that's a limited scope. I think if you took somebody who was experiencing long-term heroin dependence and through an Ibogaine experience or any experience for that matter, if they were able to resolve that and then, but they were still drinking alcohol or they were still smoking pot, would you call that clear and would you call that success? And some people would and some people wouldn't. My my definition of success is is potentially different from many, and it's and it's similar to most. Is that if you have somebody going through an experience, and they're able to resolve a significant hindrance in their life, and now they're able to function more adequately to take care of their own needs, to take care of their family's needs, to be able to work, to be able to navigate socially more effectively then you're helping them move towards better and better experiences overall in life. To me, that's success. And so exactly. when, we talk, when we talk about like how a successful is Ibogaine, when I, I give numbers that for some people are pretty um, surprising, and that's in the context of recognizing that the studies are still small, and that's why we're, we're encouraging and we're promoting some of the research in our own facility and networking with other facilities too – about being able to see how Ibogaine does work, what are the long-term benefits, getting the numbers into larger trials to be able to understand what are the the things that are implicated in long-term benefit and what are not, and then to be able to um, continue to open the discussion around the idea of success and people's success is determined specifically not by the size of the intervention, but by the ongoing level of support. So the recovery right. coaching or, or the, whatever the platform is for ongoing support is a, a required piece of anybody's successful experience going through this. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Dan. And that's why you know, we focus on skills training to really increase a person's level of self-reliance, their level of mental functioning, their level of you know, physical performance or productivity, their ability to communicate effectively and navigate their relationships in a healthy way and their ability to, you know, just function as an adult in this society. 
is what to me is success. And when we help our clients, when we take the pressure off of abstinence and sobriety and we stop that focus and we start to say, what are your goals? What is it that you want? You know, where are your challenges? And then we create a almost like a, a, a progress bar of goals and milestones and help people walk along their own measuring stick of success, what we see is that the need for addictive substances and unhealthy habits starts to reduce naturally. And we see right. this opening for this natural maturation out of addiction and into recovery with ease without forcing it. What's happening in our society right now is we are removing people from their environments. We're putting them in bricks and mortar um, you know, rehab type facilities. We're telling them how to live. And then once they depart, um, you know, we're basically sending them to meetings or something simple like that and expecting that they're going to be able to uphold a reality that right. they've never been able to uphold without the addictive substances. And inevitably, it's just depleting them of their own inner resources and outer resources because that doesn't work. But they're told that it should work. They're told that if they do it right, it will work, but it doesn't. What works is the skills training and self-mastery uh, process over time whereby a person is developmentally maturing and transcending their need for addictive habits and naturally with ease maturing out of addiction without force. It's a big, big difference in, in what we're doing now in our society and what we are um, doing with our clients. And of course, the plant medicines have really allowed this to happen as well because it's it's dropping down a lot of the resistance, the denial, the fears, the hesitation that people are having, and it's giving them hope so that they can open up into a space of um, just processing, you know, for themselves. So it's just really powerful. Yeah. Dan, you um, mentioned that your focus is holistic psychiatry and to actually, I guess you have a, a program, a 21 day freedom for meds to help people with prescription medications and ultimately to help them um, transform and, and, you know, from medicine to, uh, you put it as medicine dependent into spiritually awakened. Um, can you talk a little bit about what exactly that means? Yeah, for many people, uh, the process of coming off of psychiatric medications is um, super individualized. It can take a long time. Uh, we have to know. We have to understand a variety of influences um, and um, particular physiological nuances. So that might look like okay, somebody's neurochemistry balance, obviously, because the neurotransmitters are going to dictate people's moods, cognition, thought, but also people's levels of toxicity. And their ability to detox at a cellular level. So there's a whole field of budding science and growing research around nutrigenomics and detoxigenomics. Basically looking at a, a person's genetic profile as it relates to certain detoxification pathways. And if those are weak, then toxicity tends to build up in the system. This is most known and implicated for the psychological profiles of uh, autistic spectrum kids autistic mm -hmm. um, from from the pervasive developmental disorder spectrum you have autism on one side and moving into asperger's which is more higher functioning and then moving into adhd which could potentially be seen as a similar spectrum so it's a 21-day program to really unravel some of the key factors id you know identify somebody's target symptoms and then start the process 
many people will not complete that whole process in a 21-day cycle. Mm-hmm. For example, benzodiazepines can be really tricky to come off of. Some of Sometimes those are the hardest medications to come off because of the way they work on the system. And those are the only medications that are really physiologically dependent, kind of like alcohol. The benzodiazepines uh-huh. and alcohol work on the same receptor system. So you have to gradually, just like you wouldn't, if somebody's a really hard drinker, you don't have them stop right away because they can go into seizures and die or delirium tremens. And the, the whole autonomic system just gets completely haywire. So you have to do that over a long period of time. It's a 21-day program because many people have that, uh, that amount of time to be able to offer. And then you get into all of the supportive therapeutics, um, whether it's mind-based uh, approaches, meditation, um, cognitive restructuring, belief systems, etc., or if it's a physiologic piece, getting people back into their body, um, helping them readjust their diet, different nutritional profiles. Um, for example, Alzheimer's is described. Alzheimer's, which is a brain disorder leading to significant psychological impairment, is described as type three diabetes. And the reason being is because the microvasculature is congested in the brain like it is elsewhere, and or for example, in the pancreas, which is type 2 diabetes. So there's just a, the reason I bring all that into the discussion is there's a lot to think about. Generally, all medicines have their place, even psychiatric medications. A lot of my colleagues would say, of course, that's true. A lot of my clients and many of my friends and family would say that that's not true, that there's a, there's a flavor, there's an idea in the cultural mainstream, that psychiatric medications are bad. Well, I don't know that that's necessary. I don't think they're inherently bad. I think they've been misused, and I think they've been overused because we haven't really had alternative models. When I was trained in medicine, we weren't taught about all the different nuances that might be involved in how people think and feel. So from the medical paradigm, we use medicines. That's what we do as physicians. And hopefully and ideally, we start to learn from the other traditions about what actually is involved in what makes people think and feel particular ways. So psychiatry uses medications and certain thera- cognitive behavioral therapies. Those are the two big arms. Those have their time and place, but that's not the, that's not the end all and be all. They can help with the symptoms, but if you're dealing with issues at a genetic level, talking about is only going to get you so far. Taking medications typically doesn't get you there at all. But when you have really severe symptoms that are leading somebody to to not be able to live their life well or take care of their own needs or the needs of their family, and you only have the tool of medication, well, then that's what you use. But hopefully if we're building a temple, we don't just have a sledgehammer. You know, we've got all the nuanced tools and technologies, including a sledgehammer, to be able to know what to use at what time with what person in which sequence and over a period of time be able to help them track their target symptoms and see if they're making progress. It's the same kind of thing around concussion repair and traumatic brain injury repair. 20 years ago, if you had a TBI or a stroke, you were screwed. And if you had Alzheimer's, similarly. And now we're seeing some amazing neuroreparative technologies come out. And there are a lot of strategies to be able to help the brain heal. Because neurogenesis and neuroplasticity continues throughout the life cycle. It's mostly dominant in the 
childhood and teenage years, but it still continues. The brain can heal, but there's no such thing as a tough brain. So just encasing it into a helmet and have people slamming into each other you know, over long periods of time leads now to what we know as chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And the movie Concussion that just came out with Will Smith is about that whole paradigm. So this is a larger discussion around integrative psychiatric approaches to help people become more clearly aware of how they think and feel and then more clearly choose how to live their life in a way that feels um, supportive and inspired and purpose-driven. So it, it, it's, a, it's a large, good, juicy platform and discussion, and I think that's the direction that psychiatry is eventually going to head back because the consumer-driven movement is really desiring to see that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, Martin, let me ask you, is there any other lesser-known plant medicines that you're working with or aware of that are showing as much promise as Ibogaine that we should look out for? Um, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of research into psilocybin and it's mm-hmm. used for addiction, specifically smoking cessation. So that's pretty remarkable. And ayahuasca has also shown a lot of uh, promising results. In terms of opiate addiction, Ibogaine is unparalleled. There's nothing like it. Um, yeah. But when somebody comes to us and, and they're dealing with, an alcohol, uh, with, with alcoholism or cocaine addiction, I generally recommend that they try other modalities first. And uh, only if they fail at those, then should, they should try Ibogaine. So, um, but I, I, there, there's no other plant medicines right now that come to mind that are as effective for treating addiction. So one of the things that is very, uh, very interesting to me, and we talk about all the time on the show, and, uh, you know, I've had uh, a few different people on from Mitch Schultz, who you guys are probably familiar with, DMT, the spirit molecule. He did that, that documentary. Oh, yeah. and Mitch is a good yeah. friend. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Mitch is great. What a great uh, interview he was. And then a friend who's a shamanic uh, facilitator uh, picked his brain a bunch. So, uh, you know, Nick Polizzi from Spirit Science. uh, So always wanting to get to the really juicy stuff. And for me is, uh, of course, I love adding the science and especially when it's helping to heal people. There's nothing that adds more credibility to this stuff than hearing about all that. Um, But of course, I'm always very curious, what are your what are your thoughts or, you know, what are you guys' experiences been talking to patients? Um, you know, of course, Dan, you talked about wanting to help people to have a spiritual awakening process or become more spiritually awakened. What, what are your thoughts on, on th- all of that? And how, how often is it that these people who are maybe hardcore addicts are then, you know, being uh, sort of blasted into some sort of a spiritual experience or interacting with beings when under the influence. Is that a, um, you know, beings from other dimensions or wh- whatever it is that they're, you know, spirits, how, how is that more often than not? And, and do you have some, some good stories to share? <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> we could go into a library of stories. Um, and I, I'm happy to talk about those. And some of those are the more colorful ones. Uh, like fireside chats, <laughs> yeah. And, exactly. and there's a, there's another part of me that that's hesitant, okay, to, to to share those stories. And the reason being is because I've seen consistently that when people come into an experience, whether it's like ayahuasca or San Pedro or psilocybin or ibogaine, and again, these are in in 
more medical settings or in traditional cultures where they're legal down south <clears throat> and people have done their homework and they've come up and they've showed up in a good way to a place that's going to facilitate a meaningful and powerful experience, there's frequently the, the background work that people have done to mm-hmm. get a sense of what the experience is like so they can educate themselves. And I'm oftentimes inviting people to stop looking. Once you know that you're right. going to go to ceremony, once you know where you're going to go, etc., stop researching. Yeah. Because the expectations can build about what that's going to look like. Yeah. And that happened for me, for sure, because I do research things. And I typically don't research as much as, much as most people would because my desire, as long as I know it's going to be held well, I desire to go in as clear and available to have my own personal experience as possible without yeah. being swayed by the potential expectation that I'm drawing to it, whether I'm conscious of it or not, that might shape my view on whether or not I got what I came for. Yeah. And so many times people come out and they say, well, I didn't, I obviously didn't get what I came for because it didn't happen like it did for this person or for that person. Right. Right. And it's so individual. It's so specific and 99% of the time, whatever that person received and experienced was exactly what was supposed to happen for them at that sure. time. So sure. while there are a lot of experiences where, <clears throat> yes, having contact with plants, or I'll, I'll give, I'll give a, 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 an example of something that I don't think would color a person's specific bias, but it was a very personal experience for me. In the midst of <clears throat> living in the jungle and doing a dieta, I was working with a particular medicine that's known to be a purgative. So you you vomit out a lot of like emotional debris, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I and I had this experience where in the midst of the <clears throat> the purge, which by the way doesn't happen for me very much at all. Maybe two. Yeah, it didn't happen the, for me with ayahuasca. The the. Yeah. Three, I've done it a few right. times, three times. And that, never that's happened. another good example. Many people say, well, obviously it didn't work. I didn't puke. Right. That's a huge shift in um, perception and appreciation for whether the medicine did its quote unquote work or not. So if I have the idea yeah. that I'm going to purge when I go in and if I didn't purge, then it didn't work. All of a sudden, that's a completely different way to approach the experience and to be able to, to receive its benefit. Right. So that's it's as much as we can help people recognize that certainly there are styles and themes and it's individual specific and whatever happened and like and you could make the same argument about life. <laughs> Just to wrap that thought up, there might be times when um, people have a particular experience, like for me when I was talking about you know in the midst of the purge, in the midst of that that. Um, vomiting experience there was this very clear energetic that came out i had Uh a clear vision in my mind of what was happening an old experience an old trauma got purged through my mind scape into the bucket and i was resolved of it then and there wow it was it had a it had a very clear feeling tone mental image and whole um emotional flavor of a particular relationship and a particular event that happened with me when I was a child 
that mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was still holding on to. And once I saw it come through, replayed it in my mind, it got healed. And yeah. the relationship with that person in my life was immediately transformed and has stayed transformed since. Wow. Right. It was very powerful. And, and I didn't know that was, it was so early on. It was pre-verbal. <clears throat> Again, we, you know, we're talking about like, you know, psychological development. Most of the psyche and most of the pers- personality is set by the time we're four to five years old. There's a lot yeah. of research in ch- child development that will tell you that. And those, ac- those memories are difficult to access because the brain has not myelinated the language and the memory centers uh, into a connective whole to be able to access such early stuff. So right. it comes out. I didn't even know it was there in the bank, in the subconscious you know, database. Right. came through and got healed. So there's a lot of stories. And you know, perhaps when we're sitting over tea, we can talk more about those one-on-one. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. And, and I'm excited to be able to, to share that in the context of still just inviting people to go in as, as clear as they can to have their own experience and honor that, whatever yeah. that was for them. Yeah, I know. I think that's a very important piece is that expectation is the enemy. And if you go into these sorts of things with big expectations that something's going to happen like your buddy, like happened to your buddy or you, that you read about on the internet or what have you. And when we're all completely unique and completely different challenges and completely different things that we're working through, it's, uh, it can definitely set you up for, uh, you know, disappointment and missing kind of missing the message I think we're supposed to get from it. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, what I will ask, so Dan, would you say that, um, you know, without going into great detail on any particular stories, that there are a lot of people that you find in the recovery process that have a renewed sense of spirituality and connection to, you know, their higher self or the cosmos or what have you? Is that something that is uh, more common than not? Or what, what would your view be on that? Yeah, yeah. And and going off of what you guys are saying, I think one of the hardest things about prepping people before these experiences is is trying to explain what a transpersonal experience is and what they're likely to experience without building those expectations. So it is a very challenging thing. We see so many beautiful, amazing stories coming out of almost everyone that I would describe as spiritual or transpersonal um, Mm -hmm. that I would, you know, love sharing and talking about and really hearing other people's experiences. But like Dan says, when we talk about them, um, it does build expectation and then people run and sign up for the medicine and they can't wait to have that same experience. And I think, as I said earlier, one of the biggest risks with these medicines, especially something like Ibogaine that is expensive and um, just such an investment of time, energy, and money that, uh, and that is disappointment. Um, Now going to your question Yes, I think, you know, most people, I don't know the percentage of of people because everyone will explain it a little bit different depending on where they're starting in terms of their spirituality, but most people are having these um, transformational moments within or spiritual moments within the the medicine that then we are integrating into their life. Um, I guess... Which, what, what would be your specific question within that so I can answer it better? What I'm wondering is, you know, and being someone that is uh, so in tune with 
you know, sort of, I guess you would say the, the oneness and connectedness of all things and a lot of the problems that I believe arise and exist on this planet, both personally and collectively, is this, this uh, illusion of separation and believing that we're actually, you know, the same consciousness in different, in different bodies. And in the process of healing, and of course, in this case, it's more specifically healing, um, you know, for people that have a, a serious problem or serious addiction, but I'm just curious how much that crossover comes in because of course, a lot of people have those sorts of experiences using not only, um, Ibogaine or, uh, ayahuasca, but you know, uh, psilocybin or even LSD or something like that. So I'm just curious how many, how often it sort of, um, translates into, someone not only having the, the, the benefits, you know, biologically of being healed and in, without withdrawals and so forth, uh, that they get that added new kind of perspective on, uh, you know, the ultimate nature of reality, as I like to put it. Well, I would say, again, I don't know about percentages, but I would say most people are transcending their default reality. Um, they're uh-huh. going beyond their five senses And when you do that, you start to see everything that is keeping you locked in that kind of 3D dimensional, you know, that that 3D reality. Um, A lot of people will talk about all of the splintered aspects of their personality that they can see, you know, just the different characteristics and how those characteristics show up in different areas of their life and how they might not be representative of their true self. So there's a there's like this magnification or exaggeration that happens under the plant medicine where you can see your true self and, you know, your own, um, I guess, morality and value system and where you stand on things. And then you can see how you behave in different situations. So you can start to see those cognitive, emotional, behavioral, and social patterns that are maybe locking you into your own um, pathology. So, yeah, yeah, I do think there's this this transpersonal experience where people are connected to their true self. And what happens under the medicine is anything that is less than the truth is going to be magnified as a splintered aspect of yourself. So for instance, my personal experience with Ibogaine, this is what I saw. I had all these different voices in my head that were talking to me, whether it was my parents or different people in my life. And then I had my own like ego voice. And then I had like my main consciousness and my higher consciousness. And it was like all these voices were narrating my experience and talking to me. And it was quite chaotic, actually. And then I realized this is what's happening in my mind all the time. It's just that I'm not noticing it because this is so normal and natural for me. But under the medicine, I was able to see how much these different voices and aspects of myself were really influencing my decision making on a daily basis. And what was fascinating was through this 12-hour experience, by the end, there was only one voice left, you know? And it was just like this, my mind was still, it was just calm, it was clear. And I just had one voice that in my definition was representative of my true self. And so I had this connective experience to my true self. Now, as I got out of the medicine, slowly, it's like all that stuff starts to come back. And that's why we have this integration work is to really go in and identify what did you see during your experience and how can you apply that to your life so that you don't just go right back out and create those patterns. So through these spiritual experiences, it's like the, the root of the problems are being pulled and then a person is then just working on the pattern after that. Like the root of the core problem is often um, healed or, or dissolved, but then there's still that, that root pattern that you have to work on. And then, you know, with spiritual experiences too, I guess it depends on how you define them, but it is very common that people are, 
you know, seeing their a life review, maybe seeing their future, maybe seeing their past life. I mean, there are definitely a lot of talks about seeing um, just things in the angelic realm or in other dimensions yeah. or deities. Um, you were asking earlier, like, is that real or is that, you know, hallucination? I think right. it's up for personal interpretation. Sure. Um, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, for me, it feels very real, you know, in the experience once you're sure. in there and you start to see these other beings and you start to interact with them and you have very calculated, intentional conversations whereby you seem to use a higher intelligence in the medicine than maybe you have in your default reality. So it is quite remarkable what happens. But what I would term this is a transpersonal experience that people have within the medicines that does allow them to go beyond the 3D, 4D reality and kind of step into a higher place of knowing, a higher consciousness, whereby they can review the inner workings of their own, you know, human reality um, and also even step into superpowers. I mean, it's, it's certainly common to feel psychic or telepathic or clairvoyant or omnipresent. Um, you know, people can learn how to kind of manipulate energy flows or use telescopic vision or, or hear sounds below maybe 20 hertz. And yeah. you can start to feel the molecules in your body, like separating. It's, it's you know, amazing to have these transpersonal experiences, which a lot of people would identify as spiritual because they're connecting with something that is more real within them than they were, you know, before the experience, which then opens the door once they come out to this integration of soul embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Well, um, this has been absolutely fascinating to pick all of you guys brain. I could probably go on for another uh, hour or so with each of you, <laughs> but uh, we'll save that for another time. I know now if people want to get in touch, the best place to get, uh, I know with Martine, the uh, uh, website is crossroadsibogaine.com. Um, what is the best place on the web, uh, Deanne and Dan, to find you guys? For me, it is uh, beingtruetoyou.com. So it's just all okay. spelt out, beingtruetoyou.com. Okay. And for you, Dan? Yeah, and for me, people can contact me both through Crossroads and through my own uh, webpage, which is masteryandmedicine.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you all once again for, for joining me for this conversation. Uh you know, so appreciative of the work that you're doing and the awareness that you're bringing to, uh, you know, this wonderful topic. And I look forward to following your ongoing success and our, our paths crossing again. And, and maybe we'll do a follow up on this down the road. Sounds great, Brandon. Yeah. Wonderful, Brandon. Thank you so much. A lot of fun. Appreciate everything you're doing. All right, guys. Well, that concludes this week's interview episode. If you have enjoyed this, please Take a minute, give us a rating or review on iTunes, since iTunes is the holy grail of all things podcasting. Uh, your good reviews help us to reach more listeners. Also, we would be extremely appreciative if you would tell your friends and family about the show. Our sincere intent with the Positive Head podcast is to spread positivity to the world because, well, because we're selfish, quite honestly. Uh, I say that jokingly, but really only halfway joking. I'm referring to the good kind of selfish based on the knowing that we all get what we give in this life because when we give, we're actually always giving to extensions of self since we're all really one in the same consciousness, just in different bodies. So if you want to be a good selfish along with us by helping to spread the positivity, 
by all means, please proceed to shout about the Positive Head podcast from your rooftop. (laughs) Otherwise, as you continue on your fabulous journey in this 3D reality, be sure to remember this. As long as you ain't dead, you're already positive ahead. Journey well, everyone, and thank you for being.